0: to the Chicago Symphony Orchestra virtual pre-concert. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Johan Baes. I'm currently visiting Professor and Dean's Chair at the Schulich School of Music, McGill University in Montreal, Canada for 2021 to 2022. I remain a tenured faculty member at Wheaton College, Illinois. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome you to this program of three works, all of which happen to be by composers outside the three dominant regions of the Romantic era, the 19th and early 20th centuries. These regions were the German-speaking countries of Germany and Austria, as well as France and Italy. The turn of the 19th into the 20th century repertoire on today's program happens to come from Great Britain, the United States, and the Czech Republic. Before we talk about the program itself, may I invite you to try answering a quiz. I am going to play you 1 minute and 40 seconds of the opening of one of the compositions on today's program. I invite you to guess the age of this composer from the three choices that I will give you. Consider the musical clues that might sway you to one of the three choices. We usually think of brilliant gestures in the orchestration, the use of percussion and brass, the use of strings and woodwinds in any number of combinations to shape musical ideas. Listen to the opening of one of the pieces on today's program as you tease out the variety of elements. Consider whether the composition suggests a young composer of 23, a middle-aged composer at age 43, or a mature composer at age 60. Again, the three choices for the age of the composer are 23, 43, and 63. Let's listen to the opening one minute and 40 seconds of this piece. Congratulations if you made the counterintuitive guess that the composer's age was 23. One is surprised by the answer. It is certainly not the most logical answer, given the brilliance of the musical writing. Samuel Coleridge Taylor, born in 1875 and died in 1912, wrote the single-movement orchestral work he called The Ballade in A Minor, Opus 33, in 1898. His extraordinary facility at manipulating the orchestral colors betray his fairly young age of 23. Unfortunately, he had a short life and died during his 37th year. Listening to this opening segment of the ballad in A minor, one is struck by the maturity of the composer's compositional skills, the attractiveness of the orchestral sounds and the instrumental colors. Coleridge-Taylor conjures up in the very opening of the composition, vibrant gestures in which he arrests the attention of the audience. Six years earlier, in 1892, Coleridge Taylor was accepted as a student at the Royal College of Music under the tutelage of Professor Charles Villiers Stanford, one of the most highly regarded composers in England at the turn of the 20th and 19th and 20th centuries. He was knighted during his lifetime as well. Choral enthusiasts in the audience will no doubt be familiar with Stanford's popular and beautiful motet, Beati Quorum Via. Such was Coleridge Taylor's compositional prowess as a young composer that none other than Sir Edward Elgar recommended this young composer to stand in for him. The resulting premiere of a new commission was this orchestral work, Coleridge Taylor's Ballad in A minor. The work exposed his compositional genius to the concert going public in England for the first time at the Three Choirs Festival of 1898. This prestigious festival was to have had a new commission by Elgar on the program. However, Elgar could not fulfill the commission and suggested that the assignment be given to an unknown Samuel Coleridge Taylor, the young 23-year-old composer. Unusually gifted as a child prodigy on the violin, Coleridge Taylor was the son of a medical doctor from Sierra Leone in Africa and a mother from Croydon, a southern suburb of London. Elgar wrote that Coleridge Taylor was, quote, far and away the cleverest fellow going among all the young men, end of quote. This composition, Coleridge Taylor's ballad in A minor, remained popular with audiences from the very first performance on, proving the recommendation of Sir Edward Elgar, England's most highly respected composer of the day. It is intriguing to note that two months after the premiere of the Ballad in A minor, Coleridge Taylor had another premiere of Hiawatha's Wedding Feast, certainly his most popular work. In fact, Hiawatha's Wedding Feast became so popular that at one point, it was equal in popularity to Handel's Messiah and Mendelssohn's Elijah in the United Kingdom, according to scholars. Before we listen to a few moments from the ballad in A minor, other than the opening, I want to mention that the stature of Samuel Coleridge Taylor as a young, 23-year-old composer having had public acclaim with the ballad in A minor and later with Hiawatha's wedding feast as, an, as audience favorites, established his reputation as one of England's rising composers. Biographers mention that the biracial Coleridge Taylor being noticeably different in appearance to his classmates in school, well, had suffered taunting and other indignities because of his appearance. He was embraced in the United States many years later by the New York Philharmonic, whose members called him the African Mahler. He was a guest at the White House on one of the occasions that he traveled to the United States on three occasions. And he was embraced by African American communities in cities on the East Coast. Nonetheless, his access to the best musical training and his remarkable gift as a child prodigy isolated him from professional life in which his race became a factor in his upward mobility. We should mention that it was the premier orchestra in the United States, the New York Philharmonic, that embraced this composer of color. By contrast, we will note that the final composition on today's program, Antonin Dvořák Symphony Number no. 6, in D major, opus 60, suffered a different fate by the leading orchestra of Austria, the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra. More about that later. Let us listen to a few moments taken from the ballad in A minor to give a sense of the rest of the work. This ballad is fairly segmented, displaying different parts of the longer musical narrative. About three minutes into the 11 minute concert overture, this single movement work in different sections, we come across the contrasting melodic image with strings and winds. Listen to that particular moment. About eight minutes into this 11 minute concert overture, one hears luscious orchestral writing reminiscent of the musical idiom of Tchaikovsky, and one is impressed at Coleridge Taylor's orchestration in his writing. Let's listen. In typical concert overture form of the 19th century, the single movement orchestral work must have a three-part structure. This work has a recapitulation, a return to the opening segment of the work. Here is that return. Let us now turn to the other book end of the program. Written 18 years earlier than the coleridge Taylor work, the Symphony Number no. 6 by Antonin Dvorak is the last item on the program. Dvorak was born in 1841 and died in 1904. This Symphony Number no. 6 is the earliest of the three works on today's program composed in 1880, during the composer's 39th year of life. Standing between the two bookend compositions on today's program is Samuel Barber's Knoxville, Summer of 1915, written in 1947. This composition was written during Samuel Barber's 37th year You recognize that although the works on the program span roughly 70 years, 1880 all the way to 1947, they are all works by younger composers. All of them wrote these compositions before the age of 40. The two composers, Samuel Barber and Antonin Dvorak, wrote their compositions, Knoxville, summer of 1915, and Symphony No. 6, respectively, when both Barber and Dvorak were in their late 30s. As we have seen, Samuel Coleridge Taylor's Ballade was written when he was only 23 years old, and the other two by composers in their late 30s. So the program itself has a vibrancy and maturity of thinking and musical imagination that should excite all listeners to these three compositions. I would like to consider the first and last compositions on today's program, the Ballade in A minor and Dvořák symphony number six in D major. I want to focus on these two works because each of these happens to be a pivotal composition in the life of these two composers. Samuel Coleridge-Taylor's Ballad is the debut composition for him, placing him before the British public as a composer to be taken seriously. He was, after all, the person whom Elgar had promoted without reservation. Antonin Dvorak, on the other hand, wrote his Symphony Number no. 6 at a time when he had given up playing in the Provisional Theater Orchestra in 1871 in Prague to dedicate himself full-time to composition. Almost a decade later, his Symphony Number no. 6 shows the mature craft of composition in the hands of a young man in his late thirties. The work itself is not necessarily a debut as was the case of the ballad in A minor by Samuel Coleridge Taylor. rather, he wrote his symphony number six without the realization of something that he himself might not really have considered seriously. Dvorak, this young composer, eager to present his symphony number six to the concert-going public in Vienna, encountered a kind of ethnic bias that was subtle but significant. We could not find any evidence that the inclusion of his original lively Czech folk dance, a furiant, used in this symphony's third movement, which the composer titled Scherzo, might have led to the question of ethnic bias. Neither is evidence conclusive that the inclusion in his earlier symphony number four of a Czech folk song form the dumka, as the slow movement of his fifth symphony prejudiced members of the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra against Dvořák. It is possible that the orchestra might not have been familiar with Dvorak's Symphony Number no. 5. There is some speculation among scholars that Dvorak's Slavonic Rhapsody No. 3, which the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra performed a year before the composition of his Symphony Number no. 6, might indeed have triggered some anti-Czech sentiment. Scholars uniformly praised Dvořák's inclusion of folk song forms and stylistic Czech folk dance elements in his compositions as the assertion of a movement in the 19th century, commonly known as nationalism. So these two bookend compositions put the 23-year-old Samuel Coleridge Taylor on the map before the British public and Dvořák Symphony number no. 6, the final composition on today's program, asserts his own independent voice as a Czech composer despite being in the city of Vienna that his music was promoted by Johannes Brahms to the Viennese music establishment. Let's turn our attention to the third movement of Dvořák Symphony number no. 6 titled Scherzo, in brackets, furiant, presto. Notice that the composition which stands in the third movement of most 19th century symphonies is what Beethoven initiated as the Scherzo movement, literally a musical joke. Extrapolated from that is the idea that the Scherzo movement was always one that had a rhythmically vigorous and energetic, fast-moving character. In the case of Dvořák's Symphony Number no. 6, he places his stamp as a Czech composer on the symphony by using a traditional Czech dance called the furiant as the scherzo. Here, what Dvořák calls his scherzo reveals the energetic, lively, and rhythmically distinctive patterns of the furiant. Listen to the opening of the scherzo movement using the rhythmic signature of the Czech furiant. Following the standard scherzo form, the movement has a three-part structure with a trio in the middle. Let's quickly look at the three parts of this movement, and then we'll come back afterwards. First, let's listen to the opening of the scherzo he calls a Fouriant. Now let's listen to the middle section of the scherzo, uh, also titled Furiant. Finally, we listen to the closing section of the scherzo, also titled Furiant, um, which resembles the opening section. Here it is. In case you'd like to have the spelling of the word Furiant, It is F-U-R-I-A-N-T. This Czech dance in Dvořák's sixth symphony is the only example in all nine of his symphonies in which he used this particular Czech dance form in a scherzo movement. Precursors for the use of the furiant appear two years earlier in Dvořák's Slavonic dances, Opus 46, Numbers 1 and 8, written in 1878. And 14 years earlier, Smetana, the older uh, composer of the Czech country, uh, included a furiant in the Three Dances from the Bartered Bride, his opera premiered in 1866. The circumstances of this anti-Czech sentiment among the orchestra bears a little more explanation. Hans Richter, the famous principal conductor of both the Vienna Court Opera and the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra had conducted Dvořák's Slavonic Rhapsody No. 3 in 1879, one year earlier than the Symphony Number 6. At that point, Dvořák was not well-known, and so Richter commissioned a symphony from him. The result was that his Symphony Number 6 came as that answer to the request for a new symphony. When the symphony was completed a year later, 1818, Hans Richter and Antonin Dvorak played through the symphony at the piano. After each movement, Richter was so enthusiastic and excited that he hugged the composer repeatedly. Much time passed, and the premiere was postponed several more times. Initially the reason given was that Richter was overburdened with family problems. The real reason was that already after the Slavonic Rhapsody number 3 the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra had shown some reluctance to play the music of the Czech composer Dvořák because there were anti-Czech sentiments among the orchestra members. Eventually, Dvořák realized what was going on and he got his friend Adolf Scheck, with whom he played in the Provisional Theater Orchestra in Prague to perform the world premiere with another orchestra of his Symphony Number no. 6 in March, 1881. The audience was so enthusiastic that they demanded that the scherzo, which we played, had to be repeated during the world premier performance in 1881. Dvořák did not hold a grudge against Richter, retaining the dedication of the symphony to him, Richter, that is. In fact, in 1882, Richter conducted the British premiere of the Symphony Number no. 6, with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra in London. It was on this occasion that the London Orchestra commissioned the Symphony Number no. 7 from Dvorak. While Dvorak wrote his sixth symphony at age 39, Samuel Barber wrote Knoxville summer of 1915 during his 37th year. Unlike Samuel Coleridge Taylor, who died during his 37th year, it was Barber who lived the longest of all three composers on today's program. Barber died during his 71st year, and Dvorak passed away during his 63rd year of life. Knoxville, summer of 1915, opus 24, lasts roughly 16 minutes. And the work is set for soprano, sometimes substituted by a tenor in the solo part, with the orchestra. Written in 1947, the work was revised three years later in 1950. It carries the dedication, quote, in memory of my father, end of quote. The world premiere of the original version for full orchestra took place in 1948 with the Boston Symphony Orchestra, Serge Kuzovitsky conducting, and Eleanor Stieber soprano being the soloist. The Chamber Orchestra version was premiered two years later in 1950 at Dumbarton Oaks in Washington DC. Again, Eleanor Stieber was the soprano soloist in that performance. James Agee, born 1909 and died in 1955, is the author of the text from which Barber extracted material to set to music. Agee recalls his childhood in Knoxville in the text. He was six years old in 1915, and Barber one year younger, So this is not only a work of childhood memories, but also the child's perspective in relation to adults during a summer's evening. At the time that Barber wrote this work in 1947, he was already quite well known. He had written two symphonies, a concerto for violin, a concerto for cello, and his B minor string quartet, whose slow movement became known independently as the adagio for strings. Barber found the poem in an anthology of writings taken from the magazine, The Partisan Review. A G later incorporated this long poem as the prologue to his novel, A Death in the Family. Barber was attracted to the text, saying, quote, Age's poem was vivid and moved me deeply, and my musical response was immediate and intense. The summer evening he describes reminded me so much of similar evenings when I was a child at home, end of quote. Barber was one of the first to enroll at the newly established Curtis Institute in 1924 in Philadelphia. Emilio de Gogorza, a Metropolitan Opera baritone, was Barbara's voice teacher, and Rosario Scalero refined Barber's technique as a composer at the Curtis Institute. Therefore, Composing for the voice, in this case, shows the confluence of both gifts of Barber, Barber as a singer and Barber as a composer. After Barber met Agee, the composer remarked upon the similarity of their childhood memories. Barber said, quote, we both had backyards where our families used to lie in the long summer evenings. We each had an aunt who was a musician. I remember well my parents sitting on the porch, talking quietly as they rocked. And there was a trolley car with straw seats and a clanging bell called the dinky that traveled up and down the main street, end of quote. Barber selected passages to craft into a libretto and then completed the musical composition in the space of a couple of months. He, of course, recalls it as a shorter time period, finishing it on April 4th, 1947. In his personal life, both his father and his aunt Louise, his musical inspiration, were terminally ill dying three months apart. Knoxville's summer of 1915 is Barbara's response to these two significant losses in his life, and he sets the music in a spirit of tenderness. Barber described the creation of the work as follows, quote, my musical response that summer of 1947 was immediate and intense. I think I must have composed Knoxville within a few days. You see, it expresses a child's feelings of loneliness, wonder, and lack of identity in that marginal world between twilight and sleep. By some chance, here they are, all on this earth, and who shall ever tell the sorrow of being on this earth? lying on quilts on the grass in a summer evening among the sounds of the night, end of quote. The child is, quote, taken in and put to bed, end of quote, says the text. But the child's burning question remains the unanswered one at the end, who am I? Listen to the rocking lullaby opening of Knoxville summer of 1915. A little later, the rocking lullaby still continuing, the text reads, It has become the time of evening when people sit on their porches, rocking gently and talking gently and watching the street and the standing up into their sphere of possession of the trees, of birds, hung havens, hangers. later, the text reads, people go by, things go by, a horse drawing a buggy, breaking his hollow iron music on the asphalt, a loud auto, a quiet auto. At about 5 minutes and 25 seconds on our recording, the text reaches the following. Now is the night one blue dew. Now is the night one blue dew. My father has drained. Now he has coiled the hose. Notice the beautiful high unexpected note that lands on the word due in this excerpt. At about 10 minutes and 33 seconds on our recording, the text reads, one is my father who is good to me. Notice how this passage is not ecstatic, but as a closing phrase quality. And then the instrumental interlude becomes the climax, raucous and bold, the closing section um, almost 12 minutes in to this work has the text may god bless my people my uncle my aunt my mother my good father and notice also how the word mother is set more emphatically than the word father an interesting point of irony that seems to appear in the musical gesture. the work is dedicated to Barbara's father and since his father had passed away and he was using this uh, composition as a response to the passing of the father. It is interesting that the mother is not prominent in Barbara's own recollections but at this point we have just listened to the emphasis of the word mother over that of father uh, tips the scale in the other direction. I leave you to enjoy the enigmatic ending in the performance, rather than playing it to you in this presentation. I hope that you might agree that this program consists of compositions that display a vibrancy and maturity of thinking and musical imagination that should excite most listeners. May this program of three compositions by an Englishman, an American, and a Czech who did not reach 40 years of age at the time all three of these works on the program were composed might fill you with joy, perhaps even wonder. Thank you very much. My name is Johan Baes, and I hope that you enjoy the program.